Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We're talking fish stories today. Here's mine, true story. It's probably one of the times I've been most frightened in my life, and I'm embarrassed to say that. We were on family vacation, and my son and I were snorkeling in Avalon Bay right off of Catalina Island. The water is so clear, we can't pass up the opportunity to buy one of those little disposable underwater cameras. So we set up the underwater photo session. I find a sunny spot in the water that will give us just the right amount of exposure, and I explain, I'll take one big deep breath and head down below. Now, when I get to that sunny spot about four feet below the surface, that's when you snap the picture, and then we'll reverse turns. Got it. Okay. The best laid plans, right? When I head down deep to come up at just that right angle, I come face to face with a giant man-eating sea monster, bigger than I am myself. I could have reached out and touched him, or more frightening, he could have touched me or eaten me. So I thought, anyway. My son did his part. When I frantically got to that sunshine, those sunshine rays in the water, he snapped the picture. Only what he captured was a look of ghastly fear on my face, obscured by hundreds of tiny little air bubbles as I screamed underwater, get out, head for shore, there's a shark, a sea monster, something big, it's after me, let's go, go, go. Turns out, the equipment manager informs me, Oh, that's Charlie. He wouldn't hurt a fly. He's a friendly 800-pound sea bass that you could actually have reached out and petted like many of the local divers do. He really likes it. Sad but true, my fish story. Nothing to show for it but that picture of frozen fear on my face. Well, we're all afraid of something, right? We may not know exactly what it is. We may not even realize the extent or the depths at which our own fears are lurking below the surface. Call it part of the suppression of the truth in unrighteousness that the Apostle Paul describes of fallen men there in Romans chapter 1. We suppress and we're pretty good too at denial, aren't we? We think sometimes if we can perhaps laugh loud enough or whistle long enough in the dark, we can distract ourselves and convince everybody else that there's nothing to be afraid of. But it's out there. More accurately, as we learn from today's readings, he's out there. He who? I'm not talking about the devil. Oh, yes, Satan's out there, too. Of his own admission, Satan, whose name means adversary, is out and about, quote, roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it, as Satan himself puts it in his account before God in the prologue to the book of Job. But first, Peter sheds a little light on his account that proves it somewhat misleading. Your adversary, the devil, P. 
Peter writes, roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There we go. That's a little more fair representation of the devil's doings. Case in point, a little later in Luke's gospel, Jesus will tell Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. That's from Luke 22. Some heavy stuff there. Sounds like the devil really does mean to do us harm, doesn't it? This is most certainly true. However, if it's not the devil out there to be truly afraid of, who are we talking about then? Well, this is a perfect day to ask Isaiah that very question. Let's ask Isaiah, whose trembling confession we find in our Old Testament lesson this morning. As prophets do, there also in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah pronounces a woe. That is, a condemnation of doom and gloom. Woes are curses. Wheels are blessings. Woes and wheels. This here is a big time woe. And prophets do not usually pronounce a woe against themselves. Let's let Isaiah explain it himself. Verse 5. And I said, Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am lost. Now the NIV renders this, I am ruined, but perhaps the King James Version may get it even closer to the original Hebrew meaning, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Well, perhaps it was because he was a prophet called to speak God's holy word that Isaiah was so sensitive concerning his lips. But pick your body part, be it your lips, your eyes, your heart, or your corrupt soul. Any one of those would be sufficiently unclean to cause you to fall apart before the very throne of Almighty God. Not to mention all those areas being horrible places to contact a burning coal. Is there ever a good place for that? Even the holy seraphim used two of their wings to cover their faces to avoid looking directly at the Lord on his throne. Oh, to have an extra pair of wings when you need them. It's not just Isaiah, though. We mentioned Job earlier. He also describes a similar dreadful reaction when in response to all Job's complaining, God finally shows up in chapter 42 and announces to Job, Now you shall answer me, Job. Gulp. Here's Job's immediate reaction. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Sounds a lot like Lent when your epiphany becomes too real. It's like we sang earlier, holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. 
Remember, God told Moses, no man shall see me and live. Can you believe in light of all this, that earlier in his trials, Job was actively seeking a direct audience with the Almighty, the judge of the whole universe? Granted, Job predates Moses, so we allow him a little bit of naivete when it comes to knowing the warnings of Holy Scripture. But Jesus' disciple, Philip, in the New Testament was culpably naive then when he asked, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Yes, sufficient to do you in, Philip. It was one of those you don't know what you're asking moments. Now believe it when you hear that sinful man does not really want an unmediated encounter with the living God. Jesus himself blows the lid off of this pretense and exposes our actual hypocrisy when we make our impetuous demands to see God face to face. In John 3, Jesus says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear of their evil deeds being exposed. Who is Jesus talking about there? People in Noah's day, evil people? Sure. Who does evil today in our world? Well, I'm afraid that's all of us in Adam. And wasn't it Adam at the beginning of all this who, after committing evil along with Eve, hid himself from God because, quote, I was afraid. I was afraid, says the progenitor of the human race. There it is. As sinful human beings, we do not really wish to find God, to seek after God. That is our deep-seated fear, to actually bump into the God in whom we live, move, and have our being. We are terrified at the prospect of an encounter with the holy. Instead, we hide and hope that he cannot find us. Or if he does find us, we blurt something out like Peter in our gospel lesson today. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That plea just blurts out, blurts out rather, as abruptly as Jonah from the belly of the great fish. Interestingly, in the other gospel accounts of the disciples' shoreline call to follow after Jesus, Peter's catch and confession are not included. But aren't we glad Luke did include all of those details here? This is a fish story for all of us. Indeed, Peter does speak for all of us. Amongst the people of unclean lips, an honest confession is rare, especially since the time of Adam, Men and women have been busying themselves, scurrying from shadow to hiding place, trying to avoid just this kind of exposure to God's 
penetrating light. Thank God Peter failed to hide his sinful self any longer before the Lord because what was revealed through Peter's confession of sin is a wonderful word of grace and favor from the Lord himself that we ourselves probably never expected to hear but nevertheless longed for. Fear not. Do not be afraid. That's what Jesus tells Peter in verse 10. That was Gabriel's message to young Mary. The Christmas angel in Luke 2 as well told the trembling shepherds, do not be afraid. And now from the mouth of the incarnate Son of God himself to the frightened ear of one Simon Peter, a sinner, come these comforting words of grace and forgiveness that we too now hear for ourselves. Don't be afraid. Fear not. I like the fact that Jesus waits until Peter has had his initial epiphany, so to speak, of who Jesus really was before he comforts Peter. That way, Jesus' words have their full impact, being heard and understood now as coming from the Lord. It's the Lord of land and sea, the Lord God who made heaven and earth, your creator who is telling you, don't be afraid. This really is not just one epiphany that Peter experiences here at the miraculous catch of fish. It's at least three. And if you thought of having an epiphany about the Lord was a one-and-done kind of thing, well, then hopefully you've just had a new epiphany in the realization that that is not the case. This is the infinite God in man made manifest that we're talking about here. Jesus, the great I am. Yes, Peter has in store for himself many more epiphanies regarding the Lord on his journey ahead. And so do we. To summarize Peter's epiphanies then, just in this one compact fish story, the first is his master to Lord change in his perception. In verse 5, Peter reluctantly agrees with Jesus to put out into the deep and cast his just cleaned nets. There, Peter calls Jesus master, a word that could also mean commander or captain. By verse 8, however, after the fish are breaking those just cleaned nets and sinking the boats, it dawns on Peter that this master is actually Lord over all creation. That's Peter's first epiphany. This gives rise to Peter's second epiphany, which is now seeing himself in the holy light of his Lord God. And this is his Isaiah moment of sheer dread, where he begs Jesus to depart from his sinful presence. Peter must have figured Jesus would just walk away on the water, because otherwise, where was Jesus going to go? There they were, in a boat, out in the deep waters. Peter's third epiphany is my favorite one, because it is Jesus' curveball. 
It's the surprise pitch no one was expecting. Fearful human beings, especially those who acknowledge their sinfulness before a holy God, expect judgment and wrath, not comfort and a call to follow after. That must have been even a bigger mind blower for Peter than the ridiculously large catch of fish. What also seemed ridiculous, at least at first, was that the Lord caught Peter himself in his gospel net, all on purpose. That whole fish stunt was aimed at mainly at the call Christ gives Peter at the end. Do not be afraid, Peter. From now on, you will be catching men. Jesus wanted even Peter on his team to start building his eternal kingdom right here on earth. Wow. That must have been a hard one for sinful Peter to believe was true. But it was. All of it. All true. A true fish story through and through. What else is equally ridiculous and yet equally true? Christ, by his gospel net, has caught you and me too, again, on purpose. He has washed us in his pristine waters of baptism, and by his spirit that he puts in us, he gifts us and equips us, forgiven sinners, to contribute now to the building of his eternal kingdom. And he bids us not to be afraid, but follow him confidently wherever he may lead. Indeed, may he grant us our own many epiphanies that we might learn to fear, love, and trust in him above all things as we follow him in our journeys through this life. Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.